I believe that you can pass over, and if you have an interest in keeping a line of communication open on this side, it just means you have an interest in it, the same way I do, that I'm on this side and I have an interest in looking into that other side. Mysterious World, with your host, Stuart Palm. Join us as we connect across time and space, exploring the mysteries of our world and your world. Mysterious World. This is Stuart Palm uh, coming to you from Hong Kong. Today we have a nice interview with Jim Callahan, the paranormalist. Uh, I, I first learned of Jim Callahan by um, uh, the Uri Geller show, The Phenomenon. He was one of the contestants and he was the only one uh, who really took it to the next level in my experience. He was the only one who was um, pushing the envelope and making things exciting and playing it um, dangerously. Uh, Jim is an interesting guy, and I'm really glad I had the chance to do this because I hadn't uh, talked to him ever before. I think I've probably chatted with him somewhat on uh, the Internet somewhere, but uh, we'd never really had a one-on-one conversation, and I'm glad that uh, we'll probably have another one at some point. He's a nice guy and a really creative, um, creative mind going on in that guy's head. I would love to uh, see his show someday. If you are in the Carolinas, check him out, look him up. Um, I'm also interested to know more about something you'll hear him talk about later with uh, Slim King, Dave Koenig. Uh, he, they're doing a project together about Houdini, and apparently they have a take on the Houdini seance, which is uh, a famous thing, uh, at least for magicians, it's a famous thing, um, in that Houdini died, and when he died... He left a um, charge with his wife to that he would try when he died. He would try to come back and contact her, and so every year she had a um, séance for him. And then at some point, the story goes that she stopped, and uh, magicians continue that tradition every year. Except it seems uh, that they have something they found that says that uh, Houdini did make contact. So I would love to learn more about that. That sounds very intriguing. Uh, the Mysterious World Live Talks, that's where I left you guys off last time. That went very well. The first one was really nice. Uh, uh, not a very big crowd for the second one, but the first one, we had a good crowd and some healthy debate on uh, what the law of attraction is. I'll talk more about that during the mystery of the week. And um, the second one, I did, uh, I, I did a sort of seance with the group. We talked about um, people who talk to the dead and our experiences that might be ghosts and that kind of thing. And then we did the ritual of the rock, which is talked about in the John Stetson episode. And if you haven't heard the John Stetson, I can create a tongue twister with his name. If you haven't heard the John Stetson episode, I recommend you go listen to that. He's a very smart guy and a mentor of mine. And uh, I actually have learned more from listening to my own podcast, which I never thought would be something I do because it is hard to listen to one's own voice. Luckily, 
it's the other people who talk more than I do in these things, excepting these intro bits like I am doing now. Uh, also, we had a firewalk. It was basically our test firewalk for uh, Firewalk Asia, and uh, there will be another one probably in April. So stay tuned for that. If you're on the Hong Kong meetup, I will um, I will post when we when we plan the next one. It was really great. It was a wonderful, transformative experience. Um, I had spent the month doing the whole 30 diet. So it was kind of a January was a transformation time for me as well. And then I ended the month by walking on fire, uh, focusing on the changes I need to make for this year, and then flying to America. And um, that was wonderful. It was great to have my son meet the rest of my family and. Um, and he did. A, he was a, such a trooper. He had a, a cold and a, and a fever at part of the trip. Kind of freaked us out, but he he did okay traveling. And man, um, traveling to the U.S. with an infant is not something I would recommend. But but we got through it. And um, three cheers to Christine, my wife, for for being a great mom and uh, traveling and and just she's amazing. Um, what else happened while I was gone? Uh, good times. Logan got to to experience the beach, and and our uncle, Uncle Sam, um, he's a sort of very important person in in my story arc, and uh, and I and I got to do a, a show for my whole town, which was great. Did a, a forty five minute mentalism show and a forty five minute to a little bit longer actually. Uh, a hypnosis show for them, and they were a great audience. It was a, it was a packed room. I was surprised. It was very few uh, Facebook posts were made, and the room got full. Uh, I also did a lecture in Orlando for uh, mentalists, and uh, that was fun. I'd, I'd never uh, done that in the U.S., or um, so it was good to be able to share a little of what I've learned traveling and and honing my art. I hope you guys are enjoying these podcasts. Um, I've been recommending to people that they should listen to the most recent three before going back to the first. It's really, when I go back and listen, I'm, I'm impressed at how much uh, I've learned about recording and making these. When you go listen to those first ones, man, the sound quality ain't so good. But we were just using sort of uh, laptop computers and and trying to work it out through through Skype. And I'm still doing th- things through Skype, but I've got uh, the Adobe software now and and I've uh, figured out how to use it and I've got a good microphone. So, you know, these things uh they they get better each time and I think every single one of them is better and I you know, I'm probably talking better on these things too. At the end of the last episode, I had a little Easter egg. I I did a little competition. I wanted to see who listened to the end. So I I said, if you listen to the end, then uh, send an email to mysteriousworldpodcast at gmail.com and let me know. And uh, a bunch of people did. So thank you for listening to the end. And thank you for letting me know that you did. The winner is Sarah Stott, S-A-R-A-H-S-T-O-T-T. So Sarah, I'm going to send you an email, but please uh, send me your address. I'm going to send you a gold and a blue a Gnostic playing card deck, this deck of cards that I dev- designed, and uh, they're, they're quite beautiful. I think you'll enjoy them. Uh, you can do readings with them, and uh, you could play games with them if you'd want as well. Um, we're going to do that again, so uh, listen for what, what the um, the uh, instructions are at the end of this. Um, I also want to say, say thanks to uh, Pete Gable. He also listened to the end and let me know pretty quickly about that, and Fred Rosenbaum. Um 
I might send you guys something as well. We'll see. Uh, so thank you guys. And I don't want to waste any more time on here. So uh, let's get this going and jump into my interview with the paranormalist, Jim Callahan. You have kids? Yeah, I have. Uh, she's 25 now, though. So that uh, the whole morning thing was a long time ago. Yeah. Okay. So it's a, it's a long past memory. You're looking good, man. Uh, you you uh, keep in good shape. I noticed uh, in your photos that uh, I I wouldn't be able to guess that you had a 25 year old daughter. Yeah, I'm I'm about to turn um, uh, 54. So. Nice. Uh, Things are moving along quicker than I would like. So how how many years ago was the Phenomenon show? When was I that? Believe, I think that was seven or eight years back now. I think it's more than that. Yeah, well, I don't keep up on it really. It, it was something I did uh, because of a, a stage show I was doing in Charleston, South Carolina, and... Uh, that's how I ended up being on that show. It was because of the stage show I was doing with Raymond Hill, who had passed from this earthly sphere in 1980. Right. So, uh, yeah, maybe it was eight or nine. I'm, I'm not really sure, Stuart. Well, I've in my memory gets all jumbled as well because um, I can't remember if I watched it from Asia or if I watched it from the U.S. It is 2007. Oh, there we go. Nine we have an ago. answer. So, uh, right. what, seven years ago? Thank you, Google. <laughs> so, nine years ago. Oh, nine years. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's so too early for, the, for me to, to do be math. the bearer of, of uh, time reminders. Um, so, that I only bring it up because it's where I became aware of your existence. Um, I, I think I might have seen you on different forums online or something before that, but I'm not sure if that was first or the other. And I remember watching that and thinking, well, this is great. Somebody's, somebody's actually making this interesting. And, uh, and then, and then the thing happened with Chris at the end and I went, Oh, what, what is that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. People ask if I was, you know, mad about what what Chris did, and I've always explained uh, it as it, it's hard to be mad at a stupid animal that right. they don't know they don't know what they're doing. I mean, the guys it, from now, of course, this is my viewpoint, but he, he's sort of socially and emotionally and <laughs> stunted, and even intellectually stunted. If you've ever seen, I, I mean, he, he's around the same age as I, and. I am. And he doesn't seem to have progressed any since high school or yeah. uh, middle school. And I really wasn't – I was more upset with the idea that he could define what a performer would show as art. And once you let a performer like James – well, like um, Chris Angel or James Randi or any of these guys put forth the idea, well, I will attack you if you create this type of art – you can't stand for it as a performer, an artist, um, 
you just can't dictate that. That's not the way things work. Yeah, I agree. And that 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 was uh, the whole idea behind me calling the guy an intellect, no, an ideological bigot. And yeah. after after I said it, I realized that the term was probably a little beyond the room, as they say. That uh, yeah. most people didn't get what I the the concept of being an ideological bigot. That one thing's okay, but this thing's not. Sort of deal. How was? Um, did you get to hang out with Uri Geller at all, or? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, at the end, of the, they kept everybody pretty well separated during the shooting. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that was because it was supposed to be a contest or whatever. Uh, <laughs> the, all the performers, though, I mean, it, it was great fun because you have a hotel with some of the greatest mind readers and mentalists and, you know, mystery performers in the world. We're all staying in the same hotel, having dinner together and hanging out. It was like college or something. Nice. Uh, but the the judges, Geller and um, Angel, didn't interact with us really because of NBC rules and the rules of how a, a contest is supposed to work. But afterwards, I talked to uh, Uri a little bit. He, he came up and was very complimentary and uh, was impressed with how I manipulated the the Internet at that time so that it seemed as though there was nobody else on the show, according to online forums and stories done about the show. Oh, really? So, yeah, he was impressed with uh, how I handled the whole media aspect and gamed the Internet more or less. Oh, I I wasn't even aware of that. What what was uh, what was happening on the Internet that you well, what happened? They had. Online forums, NBC did. Mm-hmm. Well, I found out about it, so I started participating on the forums. And I remember Ehud Segev, what is Ehud Segev, um, from Israel. He was one of the contestants uh-huh. on the show. And Ehud says, uh, you know, wh- why are you interacting with these people that we, we should be above and be separate and be special? And I just said, that that's not how it works, that you have to, this is America, that <laughs> you interact with the people because you want to be known. And whether they hate you or they love you, they will fight about, that's really what happened. They were fighting the people that liked what I did and kind of the James Randi education followers that hated what I did. And it just blew up their board and people fighting and going around. And it's great. Yeah. And it bled over into other forums, too. I think at one time on the Magic Cafe, if people listening don't know what that is, it is the world's largest um, forum for magicians, mind readers, uh, mystery art performers. And I know at one time, I think they had like 15 or 20 threads going on there just about the phenomenon thing and the, right. the crap I was up to. And eventually they just had to start deleting <laughs> the threads because it was bringing their board to a stop. So I thought that was kind of fun too. Yeah. It's good to turn tables. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> it, it, it's better than just sitting there passively and letting things happen to you. Yeah. Well, it also was interesting to me because the concept of the show seemed to get lost and it did that to me with Chris Angel's participation because here's a show that's supposed to be Uri Geller's phenomenon and he is a phenomenon and he's trying to find someone else to be another phenomenon and then they're going to how to phrase what they did but they're going to make it ideological and and that's just very strange to me I, I it, it 
I was puzzled as I watched it. I was like, what? Is, why, why? What is this? Well, yeah, it, it did definitely, um, I guess, diminish the dynamic of the show. If you, uh, I mean, Yuri's done that show around the world at this point now, yeah. just about every country. Every country he's done it in, he's done it alone. Um, and it's been successful. Right. And I agree. I agree with you totally. Once I think you could have brought Penn and Teller in on the show. Uh, I love those. I love what they do as performers. I think they speak well, they present well. And I think that they would have been true to the idea of the show. Uh, Chris being a disciple of James Randi as a, as our uh, Penn and Teller, but uh, Chris just doesn't have the tact. Yeah. Or the skill set that Penn and Teller has. Isn't that as quick? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and I would have seen nothing wrong with Penn and Teller sitting there and saying, well, we've seen this sort of channeling experiment before, but this was extremely theatrical. That they could have done more or less what they do on their show, um, Fool Us. Yeah. And it, it's successful. Right. Uh, and so I totally agree with you once they brought Angel in. But I do think that NBC had some uh, tie to the Chris Angel show and Cirque du Soleil and all of that in Vegas, if if I'm not right. mistaken. And, of course, once they were just trying to capitalize on that that connection, I believe. I mean, even Jerry McCambridge, who does the show The Mentalist uh, in Vegas, he said he wasn't on the show to win it. He said, I have a show in Vegas and my job is to put asses in seats. Yeah. And it's really good. I mean, you get on national television, it's good advertising. Yeah. And I think Jerry, Jerry looked at it correctly. I mean, I knew there was no way I was going to win the thing just because of the things Chris Angel was saying preemptively <laughs> before the show even started. Yep. Um, but they, that's also why I was hired because of my stance that I'll do as I please. And on top of that, I even put up 50 grand on all of my performances for somebody to try to find a trick in it. Nice. And, and that was in effect during the phenomenon show too. But because of legal reasons, the lawyers wouldn't let me include that in my act, but it was on the website just as it still is now that, uh, it, it was guaranteed to $50,000, um, that w what I was doing was real. I mean, I'm surprised that they wouldn't let you say it is if it was your money, but I guess they would be worried that somebody would be liable or something. Oh, you should see the contract you have to sign to be on one of those shows. Oh my God. I, I have seen a little bits of things before from, I, I've been sent stuff for the, uh, America's got talent before. And, and, and I, and I just, um, there's no, <laughs> Oh, I'm sure it's, it's probably the exact same sort of deal about 50 pages long and the most bizarre language and questions. Yeah. You're going to have to hire two or three people just to read the form. Yeah, exactly. Tell me what this <laughs> says, please. Yeah. Uh, but I guess they have to protect themselves. They have to protect their interests. They have a lot of money riding on their show. Yeah. So they don't want somebody to turn it into a train wreck, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure what happened and the drama involved was probably the highlight of the show. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it was, uh, it made for an interesting story. I mean, we're still talking about it all of these years later. Exactly. And it, and it's surprising when I meet other performers that's the first thing they want to talk about. And it's not so much the fight they're interested in. They are 
surprised that somebody would be willing to stand up and not put up with the crap that, okay, you, you want to argue about this? We'll argue about it, but you're not going to stop me from doing it. That it, it comes to uh, my show's autobiographical. And I guess that was part of it too. You're saying I can't tell my story, something I've paid for with my life. Right. And that's just not how it's going to be. Well, my, my, uh, belief about performance in general is that's the best way to present something is to tell your story. And, you know, that's, that makes it real. It makes it true. It makes it from the heart. So I I am curious because I don't know, um, what is the story of Raymond Hill? Raymond Hill, uh, this is what was interesting about Raymond Hill. I, I was hired to put together a show in 30 days for a small theater in Charleston. And the theater was owned by a fellow that wrote the Ghosts of Charleston uh, book. And um, so I found Raymond and I decided to relocate Raymond's what was left of him, what was causing the haunting in his home to the theater. So I more or less relocated his um, access point to this reality. Raymond died in 1980. He was a medium, but what's truly interesting about the guy, he wasn't a fringe sort of character. He was an electrical engineer, he was well-educated, owned a company, uh, and he did his own research. He, he experimented. He was really into pendulums. So that's how I made a, a, a connection with him. There were a lot of overlaps in our personal stories, Raymond's and my own. And I just s- kind of struck up a, an association with him via that uh, stage performance because I contacted him, made the agreement that he would uh, participate in a series of experiments during the show. Nice. What, what is your form of contacting? Uh, initially, it was uh, using pendulums. Uh, I, the, the show started with me sitting in a chair with three pendulums, and the pendulums were hanging from a piece of uh, two-by-two. And I used uh, traditional fishing weights. <laughs> they come from the, uh, yep. the Walmart. And they're all hung from bakery string. The strings are all the same length. The weights are all the same weight. And in fact, that that performance is what I recreated for the, the audition for Phenomenon. I got on the show by doing my pendulum um, contact nice. thing with Raymond. So when people say, well, pendulums are boring, well, really they're not. Uh, when final contact was made with Raymond during the audition, one of the, um, the casting directors yelled out, because it was so shocking, because what, what a lot of people don't realize is that a pendulum motion is responsible for a lot of haunting activity. I used to investigate, uh, work with the Pittsburgh Center for uh, UFO Research and Surrounding Psychic Phenomenon. Nice. It was a group out of the University of Pittsburgh. And I was brought, and this was years ago, I was still performing as a magician, and they brought me along to make sure people weren't hoaxing these events. Oh, wow. And they were, they were physicists, uh, scientists, psychologists, you know, all the guys with the ists on the end of their uh, titles. <laughs> and, um, but they also brought sensitives with them. They really covered the field as far as wanting to 
categorize and find out exactly what was going on from every angle. So they, they used to bring me along. And as a result of that, I, I was in on these investigations and there was a small percentage of these things that could not be explained. And that interested me deeply. And that's how I ended up switching from being a magician and a mentalist into being what I am now. Um, but the haunting things and a lot of the investigations that I did privately on my own, I started realizing that it was wait, like people would say, oh, I hear steps in the, um, upstairs, in the upstairs room or downstairs. It sounds like somebody's walking upstairs. And um, we found out it was the weights, the counterweights in the old windows swinging mm-hmm. inside, swinging inside the wall in counter to each other. Boom, yeah. boom. Well, what was strange was the researchers, when they found this out, they said, oh, well, it's just the weight swinging in the wall. And they kind of wrote it off. And I said, it's in the wall. There's no wind. And those weights are like 10 pounds each. Yeah. What's moving those weights? Right. And then, and then the same thing with doors. This is you know, a, a line from my show that a, a door is all it's a rigid pendulum swinging in a horizontal plane. So if a supernatural, let's say a supernatural entity can build up enough energy. It can swing that door and push it open or close. And the same thing with opening and closing windows. You have, if you have the old windows and those weights are in there, you have two pendulums hanging in counterweight and they can also be pulled down, which is something I do in my show. Uh, nice. But that, that's how I got into all of this. And that, uh, I initially, made contact with Raymond Hill, with the pendulums. Then it became a voice in my head saying things. And what what I told the people from Phenomenon during the pre-interviews, they send out a line producer and he gets background material and films these interviews he does with you. I said, I have no real way of proving that it's Raymond Hill I'm talking to because I didn't know Raymond Hill before he passed over to this other reality that I have no proof that I'm not talking to myself. And that's why I have this job offer to hire people to work for for me after they die, because then that agreement's been made beforehand and I will have proof that I'm really dealing with these people. That's great. So that's the dark truth challenge. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of them. Yeah. And uh, what what happens is all people have to do, they leave an envelope in a drawer with and on the envelope. They say, contact Jim Callahan. They give my email address or the website address. And at that point, I know that this person's passed over and I try to make contact with them. And it, it will either be a code word they've left behind or a phrase. I contact uh, the person does not open the envelope, though, until they hear back from me. I send the the phrase or the word, whatever I get, they open it up. And if it matches, we're off and running. And that person starts working with me in my show. That's great. Have you had anyone do this yet? I mean, has it gone through? Well, there there have been a lot of people that have signed up. Nobody has passed over yet. Uh, right. <laughs> a few years back, uh, another performer uh, by the name of Sebastian Black. Uh, I know ended Sebastian. Up, yeah, okay. Sebastian became ill. I, I believe he uh, leukemia. Mm-hmm. And I said to my wife, Christine, I said, I don't know. I, I feel kind I'm apprehensive about I just talked to Sebastian last week about this. I mm-hmm. said, I felt a- apprehensive about calling you to making, you know, making sure you're all right, because it's almost like death calling you. Yeah. That, uh, 
Hey man, how you doing? You know, <laughs> I'm waiting. I'm waiting yeah. for somebody. <laughs> yeah. And, and Sebastian said, Oh, I would have thought it was funny. And I guess he would have, but it's kind of a touchy subject when people start getting ill. Yeah. You just don't, you, you don't want to uh, seem as though you're pushing. No, but, but, uh, <laughs> but it's great. It's a great concept. And, and, uh, in itself, it's a nice art piece. Just the, the, what would come oh, of oh, yeah. that, the, the, the relic of this experiment in itself, whether or not it becomes anything is great. Well, it's based upon the Houdini experiment with his wife. Um, And that's going to be the first new dark truth episode that I'm working on with uh, Dave Koenig. A lot of people know him as Slim King and uh, he's done an awful lot of research and there was a monumental cover up that Houdini really did come back that it was carried in the newspapers. It's one of the most interesting magic medium related stories. I don't know this side of the story. That's great. Oh yeah. It's, uh, the more Dave looked into it, the more bizarre this whole thing became. Hmm. And, and the level of cover up is just shocking that when you start looking at it, you think this, this thing should be a movie because what happens if somebody really does prove they can come back? Let's say even with my experiment that the word comes through, this, this person is definitely communicating from this other reality. Well, what does that do to religion? There, yeah. There's a lot of um, gray area and controversy surrounding that because there you have it. You have proof that this other side exists. Well, then where do you go from there? It yeah. kind of throws everything out the window. And what if this person on the other side says, what, what if they didn't go to church? That's a problem. <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, it, it really is. I mean, I go to church. I, I'm not a Christian, but I believe in a lot of the things that they do. Right. Uh, I used to own a restaurant. So once a month I go and I cook for the men's group at this um, oh, church, I, I do breakfast for them. Well, and they're that great, and, and great you, guys. you live in the Carolinas. And if you live in the <laughs> Carolinas, it behooves you to join the people that are there. <laughs> well, you, you know, what's cool, though. They know just what I do. Yeah, and that's cool. They're, they're OK with it. They uh, because they see, well, Jim's a good guy. He's not uh, he's not doing anything that really goes against Christian teaching. And he's a entertainer. He's an artist. He's a photographer. He does that. And so they're cool with it. Right. That's good. Yeah. So I got lucky. <laughs> <laughs> right. So what um, what are you working on? The, the thing that you're working on with Dave Koenig, is that a, a film project? Is it a stage show? Is it a book? No, what what we're doing is it, it, the dark truth. It, it will be like a podcast, but it's going to be on uh, not Netflix, uh, YouTube, right? So that you, there will be visuals that go along with it. That it's like a podcast, but with visuals. I I know that sounds kind of goofy. No, then I, it's sound, I understand that. It's, it'd be like a recording. It'd be like if I took this and then put a slideshow on it. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's what good. we're doing. And then you can also go to the website. If you are just listening to it, you can go to the website and see the things we're talking about. Um, and eventually Dave is turning it into a, a play called Houdini's Ghost, hmm. uh, which, which should be interesting. It will recreate the 
the contact that Houdini made from the other side and explain some of his backstory. So it should be a, a pretty neat theatrical event. Cool. And, this is uh, the uh, this is the first uh, I've heard someone speak of work of 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 Dave's outside of Dave speaking of his stuff on <laughs> forums, and that's that's nice to hear. Um, I, I'm curious on the um, speaking to other people uh, that people have crossed over on a concept level and and on a uh, the way that it's interpreted uh, by by different people. It's been my understanding that um, the belief is that someone who has crossed over who is contacting back is a person who's decided uh that they're not happy with being on the other side and so they so they're somehow sticking around in some way and that there are other individuals that will cross over and they are ready to cross over so they get reincarnated or whatever the uh, you know, whatever, whatever it is that happens, that happens. And they are not st- stuck in some sort of a purgatory. Because I think, I think if the, um, if we did legitimize, yes, Houdini uh, crossed over and he did make contact with Bess or whoever, um, uh, for the Christians, it would be, oh, he's in purgatory. Or for people who have sort of created a belief structure on, on what that means would say, well, he must not have been happy with his death there's something he didn't do or you know where where do you stand on that How, what what is the reasoning or do you have any idea well well see i i love these sorts of uh discussions just the sort of philosophical debate about religion and what specific words mean in any sort of religious text or um all the alternative ideas on what happens to the soul the body the consciousness because I believe that you can pass over, and if you have an interest in keeping a line of communication open on this side, it just means you have an interest in it, the same way I do, that I'm on this side, and I have an interest in looking into that other side. Uh, Raymond Hill had an interest in that when he was on this side, and that's why I think I could make contact with him, that his interest in this multidimensional reality didn't cease just because he passed back over into that other dimension. Uh, that's, that's my whole, my philosophy is I, I have a hard time in believing in death after life, that I think that we come into this reality from another reality and information sent back and forth that a lot of times that commu- that that connection holds, I think, that with a loved one, if you've ever studied um, quantum entanglement, there are some really neat psychological studies that they did where they took two people and put them in a room. They meditated. I'm not sure if they listened to music or how they they synced their their thoughts up. But after they meditated for so long in this room, they were placed in two separate Faraday cages in isolation. One person was shown a, they, a colored light and the other person could name it. And That's great. yeah, it's re- so let's say you pass over and you've always, you've slept next to your wife, spouse, significant other, all of these years, you would be entangled. Yeah. So th- I think that's why you have these stories of people waking at night and saying, my, my spouse, my friend, they were there at the foot of my bed. Well, what did they say? They said, everything's all right. I'm okay. 
And you hear from skeptics saying, well, why wouldn't they say anything more significant? Why do they just give this message? Because it's so simple. Well, when the the planes were going down during 9-11, the calls the people received and they found on their voicemail after almost across the board, that's the call people were making that were about to die. Yeah. And so what's more significant than that? You want you don't want your the people you left behind to grieve because, you know, they would. And right. I think maybe that's why some people stay behind is to finish that. It's it's that connection that they feel so strongly about that they want people to know it's OK. I'm OK and I'll be here kind of thing. Yeah. Have you been contacted in, in any sense by anyone that's passed over in your uh, family? Or, or more close to you than Raymond? No, I haven't. And it, it's not for lack of trying that uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it is, I think part of it, I was very close with my grandmothers and uh, Ruth, uh, my grandmother Callahan, she, she passed when she was 96 and she knew my viewpoints on all of this that, um, and she was religious. She believed she was going somewhere else. And she was very uh, intent on seeing her mother again. Her mother died when uh, she was 16. So that's what she was looking forward to. Hmm. And I had a talk with her toward the end of her life. And I said, you know, uh, I just hope that you're happy and that you move on. And I'm going to miss you, but I've enjoyed this time with you. Nice. And uh, so I guess maybe in some ways... I got all of that out of the way that yeah. there was no, no reason to come back and see me. And I, I have a strange view of when people die too, that I don't get particularly upset and <laughs> people are a little bit taken aback by that. But I explain it as I feel lucky to have known that person and met that person that, uh, it's kind of, and the easiest way for somebody to wrap their head around that concept, because you hear it in church and you hear speakers say it, but I view it as, let's say there's a famous person that you've always wanted to meet an actor, a writer, a filmmaker, what artist, uh, and you, you happen to meet them and you take your selfie with them and you get to say hi and how much you appreciate their work. Well, then you show your friends that for the rest of your life. Here's a picture of me with, and they were a great person. And well, why should it be any different when somebody you care about passes on? You should feel fortunate that you, you got luckier than a lot of people, but mm-hmm. you met that famous person and you should let them know how much you appreciate them while they're here. Yeah. So <laughs> I like your perspective, that, man. Well, thank I, you. I also had a grandmother, Ruth. And, oh, really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And my, my one experience of, of that I believe is, was truly being contacted was, uh, that grandmother and her daughter, uh, the morning of my wedding, uh, appeared in my room and congratulated me in sort of a half wake dream state. And, um, and I, and I know that the skeptics would say that that experience was just me dreaming or something, but, but it was different than a dream. It, it had a, a different feel and tone and, uh, and they made jokes and, you know, it was, it was a really cool thing and it kind of blew me away. Well, see, I think more and more you're finding that science is starting to back up these experiences that uh, skeptics can say, oh, well, you you were just asleep, that it was a form of sleep paralysis. It was 
But now they're starting to find, well, when are you most susceptible to the other side? These sorts of, yeah. That's it. That you are no longer really part of your body. Your body has been put to sleep and it's not having to process the things that it does during the day. Right. So it's free to put all of its resources into making that contact right. and that, that connection. I mean, I haven't had contact from family members, but I have extremely strange sleep experiences. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what a lot of my shows build around and also having auditory hallucinations that when people say, well, if you hear voices, then you need to get to some sort of mental, you know, healthcare professional. Right. And I said, no, that's not how it is because people, it doesn't necessarily mean you're nuts, especially if it's, if the voice is doing something that saves your life or changes your course of action to keep you safe. Uh, Raymond Hill had those experiences. I had those experiences that uh, Raymond, this was early on in his career before he became a, a millionaire and owned his own company. He was reaching out for a circuit that he thought was uh, dead. And right as he reached out in his uh, autobiography, it said he heard somebody yell in his ear, a full volume, stop. Hmm. And he stopped and then he found out that it, had he grabbed it, he would have just been gone right then. Yeah. Now, it could have been, I mean, uh, because I look at all of these things in, in an entirely rational manner, it could have been some part of him knew that that circuit wasn't thrown, that it, it was live. But it could have been the other side reaching out to keep him alive. And this, whatever he can communicated with on the other side was keeping him safe. Uh, I had a similar experience. Uh, in fact, the, the poster for my, my show, since I'm a photographer, I have a tendency to incorporate these experiences into my pho photography. And, um, I had been traveling. I, I'm also a professional musician. And years ago, I wasn't married yet. I had driven with my band to Cleveland to do a recording session. Then I drove back to Pittsburgh that night. So I had been 24 hours without sleep. I decided I had a pink 67 Valiant. And <laughs> I decided, well, it would be a good idea to wash the car and drive to Cincinnati now to see my fiance, Christine. So wash the car and head off to Cincinnati. Well, I'm about halfway to Cincinnati, which was about a six hour trip, I guess, from Pittsburgh. And uh, I'm about halfway there heading down the highway. The windows are open. It didn't have air conditioning. And all of a sudden I hear a woman's voice come from the radio and it just said, Jim. And I can still, I, I look down at it when it said it the first time and then it said it again and it scared the life out of me. I figured I was having, you know, a hallucination or whatever, but it woke me up and I pulled off. I got some coffee. And if I was going to sleep, that voice saved my life, whether it was hallucinated or not. Well, it gets really strange because years later after, you know, our daughter, she was a toddler. We, that car was long gone uh, before she was born. She's this little girl in the car seat in the back of a Honda we had. We're cresting over this uh top of this bridge. It's sunset uh, down on the coast, a pretty sunset. And we're coming down this hill. And um, Kate says from the, the back seat, I've been in daddy's pink car. 
And wow. it was like, I mean, every, I have goosebumps now. It still does that to me. And Christine and I look at each other and Christine says, no, you weren't sweetie. You, you were never in debt. Yes, I was. And we get down to the, the stoplight at the bottom of the hill and I turn and look at her. I said, when were you in my car? And she turned her head to the side and wouldn't look at me anymore. And she wouldn't talk anymore about it. Huh. And so it became that in my show, I say, was that my daughter reaching out at that time? Did she save my life on that day? so that she would be brought into this existence. I mean, there's strange things. It's- yeah. I, I love stories of children who experience their past lives. And, oh, yeah. And, and that mystery. I, I can't wait till my son uh, speaks fluently so I can ask him about, so what happened before you were born? <laughs> well, well, see, I believe in, uh, I believe that children have some of that knowledge when yeah. they come across. Sure. But unfortunately, as you said, I think by the time that you can have that conversation with them, a lot of it's been kind of lost. Yeah. Yeah. There's a clarity to the first year that, that I'm sure changes as they learn things. There's so much, so much to learn. Oh yeah. I mean, mystery of the week. This week's Mr. of the Week is a bit different than uh, the ones I've been presenting before. I'm not going to talk to you about something in the news or a mystery that I uh, read about somewhere or someone shared with me on Twitter and so on and so forth. This week, uh, it's a personal story of what happened at the first Mysterious World live talk. I've started doing talks once a month uh, on Mysterious World topics uh, to see how that uh, engages crowds and Uh, a live format here in Hong Kong. And the first one was a pretty good uh, amount of people came uh, and we were talking on three subjects basically, but the main ones were uh, the law of attraction and fire walking. And I had uh, TJ Henrietta who spoke on, uh, on both those topics. She is a fire walk guide, uh, certified fire walker. And she also does a lot of work with the law of attraction. And while she was talking, people in a Q&A started to question the law of attraction in general, which is, you know, a healthy thing to do. But I stopped the crowd at one point because uh, she had she had made this statement that I found very interesting, which is that it is our intention as human beings to make the world a better place. And if everybody is always intending to make the world a better place and and for things to be better than they were in some sense, then the world should be getting better. Everything should be getting better. And if you look at the history of almost anything, in a lot of ways, things have gotten better for humans. Now, there are mistakes that have made, and of course, we've been doing things to the environment that we need to change, and we are getting better at that as well. When I was a kid, we had made a huge hole in the ozone layer and we were all told to stop having aerosol cans and things were done and that has actually gotten better. So there are things that that, uh, do evolve and get better and it all depends on your perspective. And so my curiosity when I stopped the talk for a moment to ask the audience what they believed was if the majority of the audience was going to 
agree that the world and the way that we are in the world has gotten better or if people believe that it has gotten worse. And I asked everybody who to raise their hands if they agreed that the world is becoming a better place. And sadly, there was one man in the audience, probably the oldest man in the audience, who raised his hand. Everyone else was of the perspective that the world is not getting better. This concerns me, and I'm curious what the audience out there in podcast land believes. So please send me a message. You can send it on email at mysteriousworldpodcast at gmail.com. You can send it to the Mysterious World Podcast uh, page at mysteriousworldpodcast.com. You can tweet me at Stuart Palm. That's at S-T-U-A-R-T-P-A-L-M. Let me know. I want to know what you think. Is the world getting, is it better? Are we progressing or are we constantly going to a worse place and how much do you think your perspective on whether the world is getting better or getting worse affects the way that you exist and deal with society and now back to my interview with Jim Callahan. Just watching a, a child grow and change, that they go, <laughs> it's almost, you, you can see them becoming less divine, that when they're first born, they're just divine. There, there is no guile about them. That, uh, but as they get to be toddlers, and did you eat that cookie? No. What cookie? <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> they, they, they become part of the legal profession. Right. You know? <laughs> that, uh, can you describe the cookie that you're referring to? <laughs> I don't know about this cookie. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yes, but there, there is so much, there is such a breadth of, uh, I don't know, it's a supernatural paranormal a uh, phenomenon that's so hard to pinpoint down and it's so it it passes so quickly that it's almost impossible to recreate that event in a, a scientific setting yeah. that i i often liken to it to you know hundreds of years ago that an eclipse would be seen as a god blotting out the sun or if somebody said, oh, I saw the sun disappear on this day. Well, how would you rationalize that? Because if you didn't know how the earth cycles work and how the planets move, you couldn't track down and say, let's show up here. This is what I think is happening so we can see it again. Right. Uh, just recently, I've been trying to take a picture of a supernatural or unexplainable event for since I was in high school. I've been a photographer since I was in high school and used to shoot film. Well, a couple of weeks back, I shot from uh, a sunrise out on the porch. And when I looked at the images, there are these spheres, not orbs, not the, you know what I'm yeah, talking I know about. Yeah, you're the, talking about. The, these are actual white, they look like planets. So, and when I saw it, it, it stopped me because I'm going through the, I shot, I think it was 19 images in about one minute of this sunrise. And in one, 
there are these strange things. They also appear as if they're moving out of the frame further along in the uh, series of images. And uh, so immediately I go online because I'm I'm thinking this isn't the regular orb phenomenon that people, uh, that ghost hunters look at because I've I've looked at enough film and images that I I knew that I was looking at something strange. I go to the, um, the search on this, I think I typed in white spheres or white balls and in the, in the sky. And wouldn't you know, a video comes up on YouTube from, I think it's two or three years ago of another photographer that captured the same thing. Hmm. And the guy is within half an hour of my house. Wow. Then I start researching more and I find out that a lake that I can see from my back porch down in the valley that another person saying, yeah, I've seen them over this lake too. And I'm, I'm thinking, what is this? How did they keep this a secret? And at the same time, I'm thinking, how do I turn this into a theatrical <laughs> presentation? Right. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, that's that's the main push behind the research I do now, that I think people find it more engaging to have a theatrical experience based upon these events so they can have that feeling sure. of discovery rather than do a YouTube channel and here's this strange thing that I saw. I, I would rather have people have sort of the Twilight Zone uh, experience, War of the Worlds come to life for them, just as uh, and I was inspired by Orson Welles and some of the things I do, too, because I thought the whole war, war of the world thing, that was just genius, especially back then. Yeah. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. I, I'm a big fan of, of Orson Welles and a lot of what he's done. Uh, one of my favorite films is F is for Fake. Have you seen that one? I've seen. I've only seen clips of it. I have not seen the yeah, whole thing. The Criterion put it out in a DVD set. You can get it. Get it. You probably can download it now too. Uh, but it's it's a good it's a good watch. It's a good thing to to check out in terms of uh, studying Orson's world. Um, what I what I found amazing about Orson Welles was he was so young. Yeah. When he did that stuff. Yeah, he was. Uh, it just, it, it's always killed me. I said, how did one kid get that much uh, talent? And yeah. also the, the uh, <laughs> and I guess he was pretty full of himself, but I don't see where that's particularly um, a bad thing because he could back it up. Yeah. Yeah, he delivered. Yeah. Um, so in, in the... Um Raymond Hill performance, you are surrounded by a circle of salt. And yes. uh, what, what is the history of the, that use? What I, uh, I, I have a, well, let's see, how do I phrase this? Because I, I don't want to upset the, the fellows that do seance, theatrical seances, but uh, I think people should be extremely careful, just as they are when they're presenting a hypnotism show, that you have to have all of the safeguards in place so that people know that this event is staying right where they're seeing it, that right. it's not following home. The idea behind the salt is it rep- it's the same as the seance circle, that you hold hands for the protection, keeping this thing inside of a bubble uh, and also to gain energy. But I don't need the people sitting around me. So the salt is there to contain, keep them out and keep what's inside that circle with me inside the circle with me. That, um, and that, that's all it's there for. It's to keep 
that performance and those people safe from after effects that I'm sure you've heard of. I mean, there are just horror stories that go along with hypnotism. People not coming out of it, people behaving badly, people in the audience going under accidentally because they're so susceptible. Well, the same thing can happen during seances. Whether you're doing a theatrical seance or not, you can trigger things in people's minds that they take home with them. and. They can have a manifest experience as a result of something you've done. So everything I do, I've heard from a lot of performers saying, well, after my show, people want me to contact their grandmother. And I think it's because they're not put, they're not, the framework isn't right. I explain to people that I'm controlling everything in this environment so that you can have this experience after it's done. I can't do this out on the street, that it is this one place, this one time. And it makes them feel safer, too, that, okay, I'm seeing this thing, but I'm safe where I'm at. He's not asking me to come and sit inside that salt ring, that he's not asking me to hold those pendulums. I would rather have the people be safe and not for the, you know, have bad dreams. Right. Uh, one of the presentations from uh, the... It, the original show with Raymond Hill was called uh, Across the Bridge. And I talked about mirror apparitions, which are the most common type of ghost sighting, though very few people talk about them or investigate them. And they mostly occur at night when people get up to use the bathroom or get a drink of water. They'll walk past a mirror and see something in it. Yeah. Or they'll be getting ready in the morning, half awake, and they'll see something moving in the background. And once you start talking about that, people, I, I quit using it in the show because I heard back from so many people that they were afraid to even glance at the mirrors in their houses in the evening. Yeah. And I went, that, that's, and I don't want to have that effect on people. It's okay to talk about it in a show like this, but when you have people in that heightened sense of awareness of a seance type show or the type of work that I do, that's the last thing you want to do is to keep that that feeling in them and send them home. It's just I think it's irresponsible. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to send them home with demons. Well, that's it. And <laughs> because that's what a lot of these guys I've had this conversation with other performers. I said, you don't understand. You're putting these people in a heightened sense of awareness. You're opening that channel just like a medium would to try to contact the other side. Yep. And once that trigger's pushed, you're off and running, man. Yeah. Um, There's so many different situations that they can come about from a performance that that we don't think about. Um, But I think if if we're aware of how to handle them and and we watch and observe and keep the audience's health and safety in mind, that that, uh, everything's okay. I, I have had... Um, and in, in hypnosis, they call it an ab reaction, um, which is a person who flips out or gets emotional or can't quite change back to their normal state. Um, and I've had it be a beautiful thing. I've had it be, uh, a transformative experience where I sat with the person after the show and, um, and she opened up and, and and had you know basically she had a lot of things in her life that she had bottled up and that she wasn't 
confronting or sharing with the people that she needed to share them with. And just by going under hypnosis and being part of a, a show, it kind of uncorked all of that emotion. And she didn't know how to handle it. And so we gave her some tools to handle it. And, and in the end, she was really happy. But had I not noticed or, you know, been paying attention or, or you know, it could have been a negative effect. Yeah. And you know how, I mean, you definitely have some sort of training that you know how to deal with it. Right. And, and that that could occur. I mean, how many times have you seen uh, mentalism shows marketed to magicians, make more money, book yourself as a hypnotist. And, right. <laughs> and I just think that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, that, it, it, uh, can, it can be a total recipe <laughs> for disaster. A lot and, of the the hypnosis stuff that what what blows my mind is if you go into some of the forums of of magicians and look at the magic side of a hypnosis show from people who are come from that background mostly uh they're trying to do tricks yeah to create a false hypnosis show which blows my mind because the real thing is so much more fascinating than any effect or staged thing that you can create that there's no reason but the problem is you have to spend a few years learning to do it it's going to take yeah. you more time i mean you you'll be able to learn you can learn in you know a day how to put somebody into a hypnotic state but you won't know what to do with them yeah well i mean i grew up my my dad was a hypnotist and um Oh, wow. I guess I was I was around <laughs> it since I was probably in fourth or fifth grade. That's when he started you know, training, and um, he 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 didn't work as a hypnotist. He he was a certified hypnotist because it was something that interested him. So I was around it, and really, some of the things in my show are based upon hypnotic principles that people would never even recognize. But yeah, I know it's used. Mean. It, it, it's used responsibly that um, yeah. and even myself, uh, I, I remember during Phenomenon, who was it? Uh, Wayne. Um, I forget Wayne's last name. Anyhow, we're sitting back in the green area and he said, man, I'm really nervous. And I'm just sitting in a chair. He said, aren't you nervous? I said, no, man. What difference does it make? And it it was it's that training that kind of. I can just relax. It doesn't matter. Yeah. That yeah, what, exactly. What, and when you bring that into the whole seance thing and letting people have that experience, I used to say I was a hypnotic arts exhibitor because <laughs> my my insurance wouldn't allow me to say hypnotism. So I was a hypnotic arts exhibitor. Wow. And my, my whole thought was, and I agree with you, the, the idea that Hypnotism can be extremely entertaining and interesting, and I would rather give people the hypnotism that they see in the movies as opposed to the Vegas hypnotism show sort of thing. Yeah. That, and I do use a relaxation technique that I developed for my shows that allow people to visualize very easily, and as a result of that, the audience can see this person visualizing these things because they can see their eyes focusing and reacting to these different events. But at the same time, they're not in a true hypnotic place. Right. They haven't crossed over into full-fledged you know, trance. Well, in, in studying 
hypnotism, I, you learn a lot of language and you learn a lot about um, states of mind and perception so that it's safe to say that after you've, you've learned these things, you're probably using hypnotic tools every day in your life in some way or another. I mean, I, I have many hypnotic tools that I use just for talking to my son or dealing with going to the bank or, you know, there's all kinds of things oh, yeah. that, that are, are be, you know, makes life easier to live really. Well, I, for a while, um, I had studied, well, I guess it goes with hypnotism too, you know, compliance techniques and technologies and, uh, uh, I, my, the name of my business is Applied Thought Technologies. I used to do lectures for uh, corporations, you know, corporate events, and also colleges and high schools on how you're psychologically compromised by advertising from birth to death and how you can use those things that uh, even during my shows, when I've still worked as a corporate magician, I would profile the audience so that I could do uh, a magic trick. But what it turned into was not a magic trick that as I went from table to table, I realized that if I pick people that acted a certain way and looked a certain way and I asked them to think of a card, chances are from table to table, the same card would be named. Yeah. And that's what would happen. Uh, and they, that became a miracle. Sure. But I had this trick to fall back on if I needed to. Yeah. Well, because but at the, the end, in certain circumstances, we want to build it so that the real phenomenon and the truest magic can happen, yet we're still being paid to entertain. So we need to back up so that if that doesn't work, we're still going to have something amazing to present. Yeah. And see, in that, that's where I think some of the, the skeptics come out of the woodwork. Oh, you, you used to be a magician and you do magic. And you, I even hear it from within our own field that people won't believe in what you do if you tell them that you were a magician. I said, I'm not going to hide that I was an extremely successful magician, that I put a lot of years into that. And people can look at it and say, OK, he was an entertainer and he's been upfront about how he got into what he's doing now. Yeah. Uh, I do a balloon sculpture during my show a lot of times, right before I do an extremely heavy-duty channeling presentation. But what that balloon act does, it's about 10 or 12 minutes long. I used to use it in comedy clubs. It builds a rapport with the audience. They're laughing and having a good time. Right. And I'm a good guy. They, realize, they like this guy. I'd forgotten well, about this. I think I've seen a video of this or something a few years ago. Yeah. And when I then go down the scary street, oh, no, because they already like this guy. So they're going to follow you there and it's going to be more believable and it's going to be more jarring for them because I haven't walked out and been Mr. Spooky. I'm a nice guy that investigates these things and it's fun up until this point where now it's scary, but it also gives depth to your character because nobody's one dimensional that you have other interests. And I give my audience uh, the, the credit that they deserve to, I mean, they're smart enough to come see me perform. They can uh, understand that I have <laughs> several facets to my personality, just as hopefully they do. So right now, are you performing or what, what are you, what are you working on? 
what I'm doing, I'm building a new show. I had taken, uh, I just realized the other day, it was four years I took off from performing, uh, bought a mid-century modern house on the top of a mountain uh, right outside of Asheville, and it totally needed redone, but it's finished. And uh, the whole time I've been working on new presentations, so the I'm looking for a place to uh, stage the show now, mm-hmm. uh, and it's fairly different than my last shows with Raymond Hill that uh, it explores multi well the multiverse the idea that we exist in more than one place at a time uh, quantum realities that (laughs) initially when I tell people this they think oh this is just going to be people aren't going to be able to get it but (laughs) one of the one of the whenever I talk to people especially other performers I said look it's really easy to understand quantum reality that there's more than one reality in play right now we're having a conversation and let's say you and I were in the same room looking at each other. That's normally how I give this little talk to other performers. I say, I'm speaking with you and you're seeing me. I'm seeing you. You're having a completely different experience than I am at this point in time. So that means two realities are at play. And you just see this kind of light go on in their head. They think, oh my gosh, he's right. That it's just that simple. Yeah. And that that all of these diverse realities kind of fit together. But once you start talking to people about what they experienced, you realize that's just so diverse. And that's part of the show. The idea that I'm standing on stage, I'm looking at all of you. I'm having a completely different experience than you are. But because I just said, I'm looking out at you, several of you just at that moment saw what I saw. You saw it from my perspective, raise your, and people will raise their hands because that's what that does. That's what that experience is. It's the out of body experience and people have it without even knowing it. It's just, they don't realize that that's what that is. Yeah. So it's, it should be a fun and interesting and something different that uh, I'm also working on procuring, uh, I guess, same thing I do with Raymond Hill, uh, redirecting uh, the hauntings from around Asheville and Hendersonville mm-hmm. and bringing them into this one venue so that I can, in a way, do a ghost tour from inside of a theater nice. so that people don't have to go anywhere. How, uh, did, you, how did you end up in North Carolina? Uh, I came here to visit that, uh, was living on the coast, not far from Hilton head, because that's mostly where I worked for, um, you know, doing the corporate stuff, but Mm -hmm. we came here for vacation and we didn't really, we stayed there for 25 years on the coast, but didn't really like the weather. You can't really be outside much because of the bugs and the heat and all of that. And we came here and we thought, well, we'll buy a vacation house and we'll just go back and forth and we can rent the house out. And we went home after we had stayed here for a week or so, I just said, nope, we're just going to sell the house. We're going to move there. It's perfect. The weather's beautiful. And uh, the the thing that really sealed it for me that I do a demonstration in the show called the, the Deja Vu Experiment based upon a recurrent dream that I have. And the whole time I drove around Asheville, I had the feeling of that dream. I kept expecting to go around the corner and see the house I live in, in this, this dream that I have. And I went, this is where I'm to be. This is the place, this area, there's something about it. And that's why I'm here. That's great. 
Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Pittsburgh and it was back when the steel mills uh, were still <laughs> in uh, steel. use. Yeah. Making steel. I mean, I think a lot of them are gone now. They put up office buildings and such, but, and I've been back, I think once or twice since I you know, moved right after I was married and it's yeah. a lot different. I mean, I remember as a kid walking with uh, my grandmother and going downtown and the, the streets would sparkle and mm-hmm. the streets were sparkling in the sidewalks because of the crud coming out of the, the steel mills. Mm. <laughs> and now it's everything's clear. It's, it's very pretty in Pittsburgh now. I've actually never spent any time there. My, my uh, father's family is from there originally, but he grew up in Florida. I grew up in Florida. Um, but it, but uh, when I heard you mention Pittsburgh, I was wondering, because you do have a mild southern twang going on occasionally, so you picked it up a bit. <laughs> well, <laughs> really, I, I've talked to people at um, conventions about that, that I worked really hard to eradicate the Pittsburgh dialect, that it, it, if you get me mad, it comes out now. Okay. That uh, I... <laughs> <laughs> it's just a very nasally do, sort do of thing. Do you wash your clothes? I wash them and I go downtown. <laughs> and it's just really, oh Because that's my. my grandmother, Ruth, was, I, that's how I know a Pittsburgh accent, because she, you know, wash as a thing. <laughs> well, my daughter, Katie, when she was a little girl, probably four or five, my grandmother, Ruth, uh, she, we, we took them uh, to down to Florida to Disney. And, uh, she, she said to Katie, uh, want to go see the Mickey Mouse house. And, <laughs> and Kate looks at, I, she, as only a toddler will do, just obsessed on mouse house. And it's not mouse house. It's mouse house. Mom, tell her it's mouse house. It's not mouse. <laughs> Kate, please just leave it alone. You know, <laughs> Grandma ain't going to change. <laughs> yeah. Well, I used to go to, uh, when I did the corporate event thing, if I had to travel out of town, I would request to go a day early and leave after the event as opposed to staying the night of the event so that I could be around the people and adapt to ha- their speech patterns and yeah. how, because I'm sure you've, you've encountered this, uh, that there's a rhythm to different groups yeah. and how they talk and how they move and what they think, you know, what funny is. And if you can mimic that immediately, you're one of them and they accept you more easily. I agree. So, uh, I actually, it's, it's problematic living in Hong Kong because, um, if I'm with a completely local crowd, which I do events for completely local crowds, everybody's going to be speaking to me as an English, the second language and English spoken by, uh, Hong Kong Chinese often will still have the construct of how you would, you would, uh, how you would say it in Chinese. So the, cause you know, the grammar doesn't work the same. And so, yeah. and so, but I don't, and I do what you're talking about, but I don't, notice that I'm doing it. So I have video of myself presenting something (laughs) and I sound like if you were an American watching this, it would sound like I'm making fun of them. I'm not even aware that I'm doing it. And I was working with this guy, uh, on a, a a TV pilot thing for, for a little bit. And, uh, it's a thing that still someday might happen. Um, but he had, he had to, at some point step me aside and say, listen, uh, 
imagine you're just talking to Americans. <laughs> because I was doing it without noticing. Like I just, I'd gone into my Hong Kong, you know, I've obviously not doing it now, but uh, I've gone into my Hong Kong English thing and occasionally I'll switch into it. And what, what happens is you just simplify everything uh, as much as you can. So it's like, you pick hard now, you know, <laughs> which yeah. makes no sense. And sounds, <laughs> sounds bad if, uh, if you've not spent time in that kind of world. What does your wife call you out on that? Uh, no, actually when I, f- when I first moved here, because she is Chinese, uh-huh. um, when she's speaking to people in English who are, um, can be from the Philippines or can be from, um, there's a lot of different people in Hong Kong. That's another thing. There's people from all over the world here. She will speak that way. She switches right or, or into a Singaporean accent cause she grew up there and uh-huh. I found it offensive like an American would. I was like, why are you talking <laughs> down to them? It's, I mean, just speak to them normally. And she's like, they won't understand. And sometimes that's true. Although I don't, now I understand. And I don't think that she was probably even aware she was doing it when she's doing it. She was just, she was just trying to communicate with them as clearly as possible. Oh yeah. So if I, I mean, do it, she, she's like, oh good. You're finally learned <laughs> how to do that. It's not, you know, um, not well, I think it's around. just, uh, I mean, uh, I, I think it's just mirroring the, the people you're with that if you're not doing it intentionally, you're doing it to fit in. And I think they probably understand that. Sure. Yeah. Simplified. The, yeah. Uh, when, <laughs> when I first, the first real job I uh, got as a magician was uh, working for Bush Gardens in Williamsburg. And I guess I was maybe wow. 20 or something. And my dad was, uh, he said, well, if, you know, if you're going to do this magic thing, you better go get a, a job doing it or you're going to come to work with me. And I had no interest in that. So <laughs> I went and auditioned for Bush Gardens and got myself a job with them. And this is Williamsburg, and, Virginia for all the, yeah, all the yeah. New Yorkers that might be listening. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and, uh, I went and, uh, went down there and the first thing I picked up was saying y'all because it sounds friendly and I'd walk out on stage. How y'all doing? Yep. And you would, I would hear back from the people that weren't All from right. the South. They go, they go, y'all. I go, yep, y'all. <laughs> and, <laughs> but it, it works. People find certain dialects and phrases very friendly. Yeah. Uh, and so why not take advantage of that, that, um, and that's when I really started realizing that I had to change the way I speak so that it's more accessible to more people. Just, you know, as you were talking about that, you drop out a few, you, you simplify the language so that people can understand it. Yeah. Uh, and even, I think that's something good. Perform, that's something performers should adopt for their shows. I just came from the East coast spirit sessions and, um, it's, if you ever get a chance to go, it's a great convention. It's a, so different than a regular magic convention that a lot of these fellows are into the theatrical side of performing. And so it's it's really a great event. But my only problem with some of it is they're so wordy that mm. I, th- I think, boy, we could cut a lot of these words out because you don't really need – need those words that you could say it more directly and have a greater impact. Yeah. Well, I, I agree with that. That's, that's the problem with people who, um, are delve into their scripting heavy and don't have a good basis in theater. 
Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I'm sure you've seen that because I love not saying anything. Just a yes. facial reaction will tear an audience up. They'll just laugh and somebody says something or they do something and you just look. That's all you have to do because that's what they're thinking too. And yep. that look can convey so much more. <laughs> Yeah, being then, able to use your body and use use your your face is is really important. I agree with that completely. I was just listening to another podcast. Actually, it was WTF uh, the other day, and he had uh, Crispin Glover on, who I love uh, in his various roles. And he was talking about how when he did the Charlie's Angels movies, uh, yeah. and he played that thin man, that he said uh, he won't do it if if the or maybe he didn't say he wouldn't do it, but it was his suggestion that they, there shouldn't be any dialogue because the guy had a bunch of dialogue. And he said, no, I, I can do this guy. He'd be much better without dialogue. And then, you know, that that's what makes that character in, you know, even it's a yeah. silly movie, but um, that guy really understands his craft. And it's oh, important. Uh, see, I love silent movies. I, I love Buster Keaton. Me he too. just... I, I was watching, I think it was the general the other day and I just sit there and laugh. I, I very seldom do I laugh at a modern comedy movie, but Keaton just with the, his, his body mechanics and the subtlety of what he could do. There's so much to be learned from that for performers. And I think for regular people too, that, uh, it's been a, it's become kind of a lost art to be able to appreciate a performance and a performer of Buster Keaton's type. And I think it has to do with, we don't teach acting or mime or any of those things in school anymore, or even music for that matter. I think that you have a greater appreciation for an art form if you've tried to do it yourself. I agree. And also I think that you're, you develop a better mind by learning, even if you batted it by, by learning the basics of any art form, uh, you, you've, you've changed yourself in a good way. Oh yeah. I mean, there's, um, my, my daughter's a ballet dancer and mm. there, there's this line that, um, that if uh, you give your daughter ballet lessons, it, it will change her for the rest of her life, the way she carries herself, because it's become so ingrained that you stand up straight, that you have this grace and poise. And, and I thought, well, that's a nice idea, but you, I can pick out a ballet dancer immediately anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can too. I know what you mean. Um, only the funny part about picking out a ballet dancer is, is uh, you can always pick out a ballet dancer on like a club dance floor because they don't know how to do it. They're like, they're, yep. they're, they're so ingrained on how to dance to music that when you, when you get that kind of bait bass and all that other stuff, it looks like, yep. a, almost looks like a duck dancing. It looks, it's you hilarious. <laughs> my, my daughter also is a swing dancer. And when she first started learning to swing dance, yep. that was the whole thing that her arms were moving too fluidly. They were doing the bat, just what you're talking about. They were doing the ballet thing. And now, even though she still has a fluidity and, uh, I don't know, a, a, a style, right. People don't look and say, Oh, well you're a ballet dancer. Yeah. <laughs> Are you a fan of Wes Anderson movies? I don't know. Uh, I know the name uh, of Royal Tannenbaum's, uh, what's his most recent one? The, the, it's like a Hungarian hotels in it. Uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel. Oh, I, yeah, I did see that. 
Yeah. yeah I, um, I saw a documentary or something recently on on um, on Buster Keaton and what it was talking about was how he had a very particular understanding of the frame of view that you get when you're watching um, his movies and that there's a experience you can create and comedy you can create just using that frame that doesn't happen in real life. Uh, so, you know, when somebody comes onto the frame or goes off of the frame, if they were actually in that real space, uh, it wouldn't, you wouldn't have the reactions that you have because it's a theatrical understanding going on and off stage. And they put some side by side shots of Buster Keaton movies and Wes Anderson movies. And I, I never realized until I saw this comparison, how much he was influenced by Buster Keaton, which was really cool. It was a nice little... Oh, that is neat. I just, after probably 20 years, I ended up watching um, The Shining again. And I just watched it the other day. And I was so amazed at uh, Jack Nicholson's skill set as an actor. Yeah. Because I'm sitting there, I'm watching, I'm thinking, boy, he really seems like every half nuts drunk I met when I played in clubs that I went, <laughs> yeah. this, this guy has this down and I never want to meet Jack Nicholson when he's had too much to drink. Right? <laughs> but it is, it's an amazing movie. And I sat there and watched, I was just very impressed with it. And, uh, there, there's some documentary about, uh, Kubrick and the making of it and all the, this symbolism that he, he puts into the shining and it just strange, almost, um, uh, silent film jokes that, mm-hmm. uh, and when you, after you watch the documentary and you watch the movie, all of a sudden you're seeing all of this strange stuff and it makes you want to laugh because in the one scene, Nicholson is sitting in the main lobby of this hotel and he's waiting for his job interview. And the guy comes out and he says, Jack, and he says, yes. Oh, and he jumps up. Well, he's reading a copy of Playgirl. (laughs) (laughs) And once you see it, you go, this is just ridiculous. That's and great. nobody makes comment on it. And, yeah. You know, and the other part was, oh, you have, you have your luggage. Oh yeah, it's right over there. Well, they, it's this mountain of luggage, man. And they drove up in a Volkswagen bug. And this, this luggage is the size of a bulk Volkswagen bug. And there's just all this oh, bizarre great. stuff I've never in the seen movie. Any of this stuff. I got to watch <laughs> yeah, it again now. Yeah. Hit up Netflix. It's on there now. So it's interesting that you have a, a grandmother named Ruth and a, uh, Wife named Christine. My wife's also Christine. Oh, but that is bizarre. What is your other grandmother's name? It, Claudia. Okay. Mine was Laura. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> if that was also true. <laughs> yeah, I was just, uh, I was reading an article on synchronicity. And yeah. uh, I, as soon as we started talking, I thought, since I've read this, I read the article a couple of days ago and it's still up on my computer screen. Yeah. I thought, when you're made aware of these things, that's when you really start noticing it. Sure. That, yeah. Like when people, when uh, women that are pregnant, they're pregnant and it seems like everybody is now pregnant sort yeah. of deal. And all of a sudden all your friends have kids at the same time. You're like, what's up? What? what? <laughs> that's it, man. Uh, it, it, it's strange when you realize that your kids are as old as they are. Like 
you know, mine being 25 that you just go, wow, you know, things, things move along quick all of a sudden if you don't pay attention. Yeah. Well, I, I'm enjoying that experience in the sense of time because time seems to simultaneously go really slow and amazingly fast. (laughs) And before I had my son, I was like, oh my God, time just keeps getting faster and faster. But now having the ability to experience his experience of the world as well and all of those amazing moments time goes simultaneously also slow it's great yeah see what i unfortunately back when i was shooting a lot of video in that of her it was when vhs tapes and all that crap and i still have to transfer that stuff over because for me i've always taken pictures and I do it just for the reason you're talking about. I look at the picture and I can remember everything about that image. And it's a way of restarting your memory. And a lot of people have said, you know, you're not in any of the pictures, that there are all of these pictures of events and things that you've been to. And there are very few pictures of you. I said, I'm in the pictures. I I said, I'm in their eyes because they're looking at me. Nice. And, And people... And all of a sudden they get it that that's, I, I want to, it's a, it's an image for me so that I can remember them. Right. That, uh, so it, I, I think there's a lot to be said for capturing images and holding those memories, especially with, like you said, your son's young and it, it, it's strange. I, I'm telling you, this is going to happen when your kid's in high school or something. All of a sudden, it, you're going to have this memory of holding him and you'll be able to feel his arm like on the back of your neck. Yeah. It, because you do it all the time. Now you pick the, the, the child up and the child hugs you. Mm-hmm. And it's such a strange, uh, it's, it's almost a gift that we have this tactile memory too, that most, I don't think a lot of people ever even think about it, but when you, when you think about your child, you will have those tactile memories, which is like a gift. Nice. I, he really spooked me out last night and I don't know if he was trying, if he knew what he was doing and was doing it on purpose or not. Um, but, uh, he woke up in the middle of the night crying for whatever reason. And, uh, and I went and calmed him down and chatted with him for a bit. And, uh, and he seemed like he was calmed down and, and, uh, his little nightlight thing that, uh, goes off on its own, played a song and, and went off and I'm still sitting there just waiting to kind of listening to him breathe you know, to see that he's comfortably back asleep before I, I leave the room and, um, and I don't hear him move and I don't hear anything else. And I'm, I'm sitting on the stool right next to the crib and all of a sudden right next to my ear, I hear daddy. (laughs) (laughs) He had managed to stand up and positioned himself so his mouth was right next to my ear and whispered, Daddy. And then... And You're then, wide awake then. And I was like, oh. And it made, it made me jump. And then he laughed. And I was like, oh, whoa, that was brilliant. That was brilliant. And, and your... Uh, 15 months old. So I, I, I have no idea what conscious, what you thought you were doing. I don't know why he would even think to whisper, you know, okay. 
<laughs> he's going to grow up to direct horror movies. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was, it was amazing. It was a great moment. I was like, wow, thank you for that. And now, go, now go back to sleep. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was going to say. You, you, you didn't go right back to sleep after something like that. <laughs> uh, no, no, I did not. <laughs> uh, well, listen, I have to take off. Um, I, I have some stuff yeah, I have to do and, uh, I did enjoy talking to you and yeah, I, me too. This has been great. I find it utterly, uh, <laughs> sounds like Ed Grimley, doesn't it? Utterly cool that um, you can have a conversation with somebody on the other side of the world. I do too. Via the internet. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks for being with me. You know, we should chat some other time about other things. Uh, it's been enjoyable. Thanks again to Jim Callahan for joining me. That was a really nice time, uh, and I'm glad to have been able to have a chat with him. He's one of the first um, interviews that I've done where I didn't have uh, had never talked to him before, so that was nice uh, to get to know him. And I'm looking forward to chatting with him more in the future and to hearing how his projects pan out and and if somebody actually joins the uh, the group of. Um, uh, seance connectors. What did he call that? I have it written here somewhere. It was the dark truth challenge. If somebody joins that, I would love to know, uh, the outcome. And I'm very curious to see about this, uh, Houdini, uh, story that I'm not familiar what, with of him actually making contact. Lots of stuff to look forward to, to hear more about on that front. Um, it's been a bit since, uh, I recorded that and I have a lot to talk about on, on, uh, uh, on other things, but if you are in Hong Kong, uh, look at the meetup for Mysterious World and uh, join us for the Mysterious World live talks. Also, there will be another firewalk in April. That was a great time. Um, I haven't recorded the opening to this, so an uh, odd sense of twist in time. I will in a second go record that and talk about the firewalk. So you're going to be listening to this after you listen to that, which is a little strange, but I don't know that people actually listen to the ends of these things. So I'm always curious about that. If you do listen all the way to the end of this, send me a message that says, I listen to the end. I've been doing little secret uh, Easter eggs like this right now uh, and giving people uh, a prize for being the first person to tell me that they listened all the way to the end of the podcast. So if you're that person, you'll win something. Congratulations again to the winners from the last time. I am Stuart Palm. You're listening to the Mysterious World podcast. Uh, you can contact me at, uh, at Stuart Palm on Twitter. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.